0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of From Paper to People. My name is Carolyn Neelachlan. I am your hostess with the mostest, and this is episode 214. This was an easy week for me in a way, and a kind of a nerve-wracking one in another. I didn't have to do any work, really, to record the episode that you're about to hear, Somebody else did, actually, to somebody else's did, because I was, for the first time ever, interviewed myself on someone else's podcast, and they graciously agreed to let me rebroadcast it in its totality. And so that's what you'll be hearing in this episode today. I was interviewed by two cousins of mine, actually, Brian Sheffy and Donya Williams. Both of them are descended, as I am, from Cecilius Calvert and Anne Arundel, the Lord and Lady Baltimore, which is some kind of fancy roots. And we had a really great chat about reparational genealogy, what it is, what it means, who benefits from it, why do it, who should be doing it, and some of the facts of life of racism in genealogy because there is systemic racism in the archives, in the libraries, and in some of the record systems, and certainly in attitudes of some researchers here in the United States, and probably, you can tell me, in other countries as well. So I hope that you enjoy this episode. I didn't do any editing at all except to edit out this one little place where Skype hung up. And we had to wait to get back in touch with each other. So I hope that you enjoy the episode. And here it is. Here's the interview. Hey,
1: everybody. How are you doing? This is Donya. Hi, everyone. This is Brian Sheffy. And you're with us on Genealogy Adventures.
2: Yes. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So we have a great guest today. And we want to jump right into it. I want to say hi to everybody. And we want to apologize for, um, again, Facebook. It's not allowing us to play for some reason. It doesn't want to play with us. So um, we're on listenvisionlive.com, and you can find us there. You won't be able to leave any messages, but you will be able to follow us and talk with us. Well, and see us talk with our new guest, Carolyn Carolyn Lachlan.
0: there you go. <laughs> did I say it right? <laughs> you did. You did. Okay. Hey
2: Carolyn, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing great. It's so great to see you guys. It Little is. family reunion we're having here. That's
2: what it is. It is definitely a family reunion because we're all related. So this is awesome. And Carolyn is gonna to talk to us today about some a very hot button topic. Mm-hmm. Reparational genealogy. This is new to me and Brian. We've never heard of this? No. So when I first met um, Carolyn and she told me what her actual study, as far as genealogy was concerned, I was I was intrigued um, because reparations is serious. So with that being said, welcome, welcome, and um, why don't you tell us a little bit about what reparational genealogy is?
0: Sure. Well, uh, you haven't heard of it before because I made it up. Um, Or at least I made up the term. The concept is probably not mine, but I made up the term. Uh, The idea is uh, that I personally do... Well, pretty much all of my research is free, and it is for descendants of enslaved persons. And there's a lot of reasoning, uh, and there are a lot of sort of um, building blocks as to why that happened and where that came from. Uh, But basically... I think that it's a moral obligation of any white genealogist to at least give pro bono hours and do research for African Americans, for people who were descended of enslaved persons, because it is a part of reparations. I'm not rich. I don't have money to give to people to get into the housing that their family was excluded from in the past. I don't have the ability to solve any kind of an educational gap that was caused by people being kept out of educational institutions, or any of the other things that came with Jim Crow that uh, come with the American history of white structure exclusion of the descendants of enslaved persons. The one thing that I've got is the ability to do research, the ability to do it quickly, and the ability to teach how to use online tools to people who are clients. And what I decided a few years back was, uh, first off, if you can see me, um, I'm what I like to call professionally white in that I am 100% northern and western European. Um, I don't even, I mean, I, it's just that. And, um, and so I know that, I knew that sooner or later there would be slaveholding Ancestors, And I started finding them in 2011. And one of them is descended from our mutual ancestors. And the more I looked, the more I found. And the more I realized that as I was doing the research, it was really easy for me to trace back hundreds, even thousands of years in some lines. And that, to my knowledge at that time, people who were descended of enslaved persons hit the brick wall in 1870. Yeah. And my concept of my own family is one of an incredibly deep-rooted family, both here in, on this continent and in northern and western Europe. I grew up with family stories telling me about family who came over in 1830 of their own will from Ireland. And when I started to really think about that, uh, I realized that I had incredible privilege and that I needed to do something with that. And that's just me. That's just what I want to do. Um, I do think other people should do it, but that's basically what reparational genealogy is.
1: Wow, that's awesome. So the question that I have for you is going from a you know, very European-centric kind of genealogy, which requires a certain skill set to be able to do, what was it like learning a completely different set of skills to research enslaved people?
0: Lots of trial and error. And even then, there's a point past which I turn my clients over to other people who know more than I do. Uh, What I do is, well, episode two of my podcast talked about a Corbett, and it talked about her life, and it talked about how I realized that FamilySearch.org, which is owned by my church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, didn't account for her existence but Family Search always adds white, famous people when they die and does their genealogy for them so that it's available internationally and free. And so I was furious, and right then, as soon as I heard Oprah's speech, I said, that's it, I'm doing this. And I started doing work on her family. And I had done other African-American research before, and... Basically, it took, it took me to a different level of thoroughness and accounting for changing names and error. <laughs> the differences in ages that show up for one person from census to census are hilarious. I think that they bear out the phrase, black don't crack, because apparently white people don't know. <laughs> Apparently white people who do censuses or did censuses just thought that everybody pretty much looked alike and that they could sort of guess at whatever they wanted to. I've seen 30 year age ranges for births for people who were either enslaved themselves and free in later life or descended of enslaved persons. And that's not something you run into when you're looking at white people's records wow. in U.S. records. I didn't know You'll, that. Oh, yeah. I mean, my ancestors, you'll see a disparity of maybe five years looking at a lifetime's worth of records in terms of estimated birth years and then what the actual birth year is. Um, it's really funny because as black folks get older, they get younger on the census. That's not a total rule, but it's something that I found. And, um Anybody else who I've worked with or taught, certainly in a church setting, um, the vast majority of people I've taught were white. And they didn't understand that records were inaccessible. Uh, they didn't, because, well, in some cases, if if, uh, if you were to walk into a place and ask for a record that I'm going to walk in and ask for 10 minutes later, you might not get served. Ooh. Depends on where it is. That's happened. That's I happened to people I've known.
2: <laughs> You are touching on some really woo. <laughs> 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 you are touching on some. You are touching on some things. Um, but I wanted to to jump in on that uh that black don't crack thing. Um, Brian and I, when we first found Moses, mm-hmm. I found Moses first, and um, for those that don't know, well, most of you guys know, but you might not know, Carolyn. We have mm-hmm. a four time great grandfather by the name of Moses Williams and he had 45 children, 20, 40 girls and five boys. And he had them with two women. So one woman had 22. The other one had 23. Now the thing is, is that when, when I first found him, we already knew about his son. We didn't know about him. So when I found the Moses Williams in the newspaper, we thought it was him. We thought it was that Moses, the other one. But and in that article it stated that he had 45 children and, and literally reiterated what I just said. And when I s when when I told Brian about that, I told Brian immediately, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not gonna do that research. That's too many kids. And he just he paid me no attention. But <laughs> nevertheless, in that article it also stated that he looked fifty, but he was actually sixty-five. Mm-hmm. So that was 15-year difference. Then Brian turns around and finds the obituary. And when Brian found the obituary, we learned in the obituary that only two of his children had died. And the obituary was saying that 43 of his kids were still living, and that he died at 115 years old.
1: So you can imagine this research because- (laughs) You see her face? (laughs) Moses Sorry, I was stunned to silence for yeah. just a moment there. Because the elder Moses was born 1765, give or nah. take, 1769, give or take, in Virginia. So he was brought from Virginia to North Carolina to South Carolina. Right. So he lived to be... 115. So that was 1884. 1884. When he died. Yeah. So all of the 45 children were born in the depths of slavery, which right. we're all, you know, were, we're actively searching for them.
2: Right. Born in the depths of sa- slavery. And in Virginia, North Carolina, and South Carolina, so oh yeah, we're we're like that whole thing. When you talk about that, one of the first things that I said to Brian was like, "Do we have to go back like that with all of our family now?" Because I'm like, "How is it that you look 15 years younger than what you're actu- than what you actually are?" Does that mean we have to go and check all of our family like this? I'm like, this is some bull. I am not doing this research. (laughs) And he just ignored me. And then the next day he was like, okay, so this is what I found. And this is the way we're going to do it. And I'm on the phone rolling my eyes at him because I was going to do it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) But... Yeah, it, it's yeah. something else.
1: But you are right. There is a, there is a distinct difference because when I think about my very poor, you know, dirt poor Irish and Scottish ancestors in the Appalachians, they still had a rough idea of how old they were, right. especially the ones that came out of the, like right after the Revolutionary War. Even mm-hmm. if they didn't know the exact year of their birth, they're like, well, I was about eight or nine when the, when the Revolutionary War broke out so they could just do the math and figure out what their year of birth was. But if you were denied an identity... And if you were denied a history, or if you were sold away from your parents and you were just a baby, you're not going to have any idea of what, how you know, how old you are, much less what year you were born. You're just, you're just not.
0: Absolutely. I, I think that one of the things that bothered me the most when I was starting to find these things out, I mean, I had the classic white liberal tears about, oh, my ancestor enslaved people when I found my first enslaver in 2011. But I kind of got rid of that pretty quickly, and it, it turned into... Oh, my gosh, there are people out there whose lives were lived basically for the benefit of my family. And their descendants have this enormous gulf between themselves and, well, certainly my first thought was the African continent. And how do you get people back to the coast and get them over the ocean? Now, it's very easy to do with white people and white research. It's very easy to figure out when it was the people landed. You can find the ships that they came in on and everything like that. I'm not super sharp in how that's done with enslaved persons when they were first brought over. And that's when I hand people over to people who know better than I do. But um, in terms of, of what I do, is I work in ancestry first With all the records that I possibly can. And I find all the information that I can from the person that I'm doing the work for. And then I just build backwards from what I know to what I don't know. And I use a technique that I call shrubbing, which is a little bit more than cluster research. It's kind of cluster research squared. And the idea is that every time that you work on a person's parents, you trace up to their grandparents. But then you also go sideways, and you get all the aunts and uncles. And then you come down, and you get all the cousins. And you do that with each and every person in that direct line of descent in order to find out where the interesting things are happening. Are sets of siblings marrying other sets of siblings in a neighboring family? If so, what does that mean? Um, and the same kinds of things where you find Cousin intermarriage. I certainly find it in my family. And um, those kinds of skill sets aren't called upon quite so much when you're researching a strictly European-American trait. Um, I think it's a good idea to do it because you end up accounting for infants who died under the age of 10 Mm -hmm. because the census is taken every 10 years. You find people who uh, died without issue. That's important. It's important to me because I'm going to die without issue. Um, those kinds of skill sets are important, but they're really, really important, and that's how I developed them by working in African American trees.
2: That's how. We so do
0: that's it. one of the ways. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> that's exactly how we do it, just the way you just said that. That's that's it. <laughs> that's what we do. We um we we take that type of you called it shrubbing.
0: shrubbing because it's not a tree it's a shrub it's a
2: shrub you're right and and that's that's exactly how we do our research so my question to you is can you give an example of a time where you helped someone um as far as that's concerned and 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 what did it what did it give them like what how did it connect them to somebody else
0: yeah i had i had and i've had two trees connect to a common ancestor um, you know, within Ancestry, within my account, I've, there's a separate space for each of the trees. Um, but when you add a record to somebody in one of your trees, if you've already added it to a person in another one of the trees that you own and are researching in Ancestry, it shows, that attachment shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was working on a tree for one woman who lives in New Mexico and whose family originated uh during enslavement in Texas and in Mississippi before that. And another woman came to me, or I came to her. I can't remember which. Frequently I just approach people, and I'm like, hey, can I do your research? Which <laughs> is really, it's like, I mean, and they're like, who is this woman, you know? But, I mean, I accost people on, on Facebook from time to time and ask if I can help out. And um, the, the amazing thing was these two extremely different women One living in Texas, the other living in New Mexico, having descended from Texans and Mississippians, both descend from the same Mississippian who served in the U.S. Colored Troops. Wow. And uh, not only that, but by the way, uh, a census taker said that this man, Moses, uh, and this woman were—I know, everybody's got a (laughs) Um, Moses—it's just like, Moses, Moses, Moses. Moses— his, they said it was his wife with whom he was living. It's not, it was his daughter. Mm. But the age difference didn't necessarily point that up. There is a history of older men marrying younger women. Right. And so that wasn't necessarily it. But I had to kind of figure it out according to, by looking at both of the trees and assessing relationships in both of the trees. Now, there's a certain amount of what I do that is just simply being inspired by the spirit. That's just what I do. Um, For me, this is a spiritual exercise. It's a religious exercise. Um, It's a lot of things that don't have to do with all that training that I got, getting a history degree and a law degree and all that kind of stuff. It's simply folks show up. And the the other example I can give you of that is a friend I made on Facebook. I said, let me do your tree. And... If you want to, we'll discuss it on my podcast. And if you don't want to, we won't. It's totally up to you. And he said, okay. And he let me, he let himself be a guinea pig. He was very, very nervous because he said, all you're going to turn up is, you know, enslavement and ugliness. And I said, look, that's going to be part of what I turn up. But I'm going to turn up other stuff too, I'm sure. Let's just wait and see. And he said, okay. And I worked on his dad's side, and that was very interesting. And then I worked on his mom's side. And in his mom's side... I found a woman named Dicey, and Dicey was born into enslavement, and her mother was living with her in the 1920 census, I believe. Uh, Her mother was still alive and could not read and could not write. Dicey could read and write and owned her own property. She owned the house and the land that she farmed with her family, and she had children, and the thing that was so interesting to me was that Those older children, as you're looking at the earlier census records, can't read, can't write. Then they can read and they can write, but they've only had to second grade schooling or so. The youngest of her children had full high school education and graduation. And her grandchildren moved north and got baccalaureate, master's, and doctoral degrees.
2: Awesome.
1: (laughs) And
0: that was amazing.
1: Which is again a really good point. Whenever you're looking at census, return, census records, don't just click and save the information. Open those bad boys up; they are just filled with so much information that actually kind of really brings your ancestors and the extended family to life. Just little things like you can track someone's ability to read and write. Exactly. Like I said, you can see the point where they couldn't, and then you can see the point where they could.
2: Exactly, you saw the change, and that that was yeah. that was like with John Yaldell. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and then and and the thing is is that you have, you know, there's so much information in the census record that people tend not to to see like I was talking to Yolanda. Yolanda. And um hey sis, I know you you watching. <laughs> <laughs> and um I was talking to Yolanda today and we were talking and um we began to realize exactly when Lady Lila married um the Morgan guy. Right. And we found that in the 1930 census. Now, in most instances, you have the 1910 and the 1900. That'll give you years of when they were married, and you can go back from that. But in the 1930 census, it actually gave what her age was and the year she got And the year, the how old she was when she first married. Well, the 30 census says she was 22 at that particular moment, but she was 21 when she got married. So guess what she got married in 1929 because it was the 1930 census and you know we were talking about that trying to decipher because he ended up marrying three different women and we were trying to decipher who was first who was second and who was third so that's how we got to her being second but it was really really um neat to be able to do that and and Put that down, but that's the kind of work that you have to do as far as researching in African American history. You don't, you don't have to do that in when you're, you know, researching European history. And um, I guess my, my next question is: knowing that I am a descendant of a white family who who was enslaved, how how do you help? How would you help me?
0: Okay, so. Basically, if I can get to a place where I can understand where the family, the African American family, the enslaved family, was enslaved, if I can find them being born before 1865, then I can start to understand okay, this is the location of where your family was, you know, at this moment. And I look to see if the the generation following the person who was born pre-1865, if those kids were born in the same place. Uh, If there are spouses, you know, well, there are always spouses, what am I saying? Um, In the the case of spouses, I look to see were the spouses living in the same place at the same time? If so, when, how exactly did that work out? Then you can start to go back to old maps and you can start to look and find who owned land in the area. One of the things that I did recently Uh, I'm working on, oh gosh, now which tree is this? Uh, It's one of the reparational genealogy project trees that I'm working on. And someone else in the family did some really great work. And so I don't usually believe other people's ancestry trees. Other people's research is crap. I do my own. Um, But in this case, these particular descendants of this same core family that I was looking at had found and had snapshotted and saved as a as a, uh, a JPEG as opposed to just saving it to their tree, the uh, slave schedules of 1860, and they showed and accounted for family members on that slave schedule, and um, honestly. I don't have any reason to doubt that because there are people who are in this to win this for their own family reasons and they're doing better, more thorough work than I am in that way. So, I frequently message those people and say, "How did you find that out?" And if that's something that's true, I save it to the tree and we start to be able to find who were the owners of the enslaved people, who were the enslavers. Was and
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> cuz what i did that's exactly what i did that's that's how i found martha and who she and who she was um who her family was that's how i ended up which was shocking is i don't know what but that's how i ended up finding out who her parents well at Mm. least one of her 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 mother was Mm. which was creasy and yeah that's exactly what i did i did that exact same thing 1850 and 1860
1: slaves. Yes. Well, I have a little ti- I have a little tip for those slave schedules because I'm going to admit that for the last couple of years I've just avoided them because if you d- if you don't know what to look for they're not particularly helpful right. because you don't very rarely do you see names sometimes they do but most of the times they don't so I've started working with I will find the estate inventory for the enslaver because that way you have the full list. You have a pretty good idea of what the rough ages were, so you can work out their year of birth. Then I go back to the 1850, 1860 schedule, and then I mm-hmm. start doing the comparison. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, we've got a mul- mulatto female, age 35. Oop, there's her three kids. Well, that's going to be Martha, Ann, Lewis, and Simon. And I can literally start writing out their names. It gets a little bit trickier with people like James Henry Hammond, who had hundreds of enslaved people, so you're going to have multiple people with the same name roughly the same age so it is a little bit trickier for that one but i'm pretty i'm, I'm getting pretty good at it with yeah. say someone who enslaved 20 or less people but uh, that, that's my little tip yeah. get, get the estate inventory get the will get the actual list of people start noting how old they are in their name of their the year of birth then go back to the 1850 1860 slave schedule and start making those comparisons
2: right and then that's basically what we were doing with the um Mm. but because the the Edgefield Slave Record book had already done that portion of our work they it's like already written down it's there so we were able to actually make those comparisons and then so when I found out when I realized that the same amount of people in the Edgefield Slave Record book it was like 93 enslaved people for Whitfield Brooks he had like 93 of them 91 93 Um, enslaved people and then I looked at the 1850 slave schedule and it was the exact same number that meant that I had the names of every last one of his enslaved people who were listed on that 1850 slave schedule and then he also was very meticulous in keeping families or who the families were and he had three sets of families and I was able to see those families in that 1850 slave schedule, and compare them to the families that was in the book, and that's how I ended up finding my great great mm-hmm. grandmother. But it's you know, it's really um, it's a t- it's African American research is very tedious, and I applaud you, um, for taking that time <clears throat> taking that time to learn how to do it, and and you do it exactly the way we do it. You like, yeah, there's like no mm. change or difference. And <laughs> in, in how we do it.
1: Um, well, I was going to say, we're actually blessed to be in a position where we can start identifying the enslaver just through the family groups. Yeah. And how they're living yes. together, whose land they're living on, especially in 1870. Because um, I think that's a lot of things, especially for newbie African-American researchers, is getting their head around dower slaves. And for those of you who aren't familiar with that phrase... If you had a, f- a woman coming from an enslaving family, right. marrying a man right. who came from an enslaving family, she was bringing her enslaved people, which were her property. Right. They weren't her husband's property, they were hers. Right. So you think women have to go move home, it could be a completely different county, to go you know, set up house with their husband, who may decide, well, I'm kind of bored living in Fairfax County, Virginia. I fancy going to Madison County, Alabama. So again if you're try, if you're looking for your enslaved ancestors not realizing you're looking for looking at dower slaves you're looking for her people in Alabama when they're actually You're not going to find them because they're actually from Fairfax County, Virginia.
2: Right. And then that was the other thing that we um, that the the rap Curtis Jackson or most know as 50 Cent. That's actually what happened to him. His four-time great-grandmother was actually dow- was a dower slave. Because the the woman, was a Nancy?
1: I think, I think that. Yeah.
2: She married a Dunavant. So when they did his research, they actually said that his enslaved people were originally owned by the Dunavants. But they weren't. They were actually owned by the Brooks family. So you don't know. If you're going to look for those people under Dunavant, you're not mm-hmm. going to find them they're actually under the Brooks line. But I have another question for you, and this goes towards your podcast. Um, Does your podcast talk a lot about this, or is there other things that that you do? Because I want to definitely shout your podcast out. So, um, you know, give that name and everything.
0: Okay. It's called From Paper to People. The idea is we are bringing history to life, right? Um, I teach three different kinds of episodes. or or provide. The first one is a teaching episode. Um, season one was hardcore into teaching how to use ancestry, do it my way or, you know, or suffer the consequences. I am very self-righteous. Um, I've made so many errors in my own work over the past 40 years that obviously, you know, I will have learned something. So there's that. And then number two is I like to interview people. I'm not necessarily very good at it yet. I don't know, but I like to interview people, and I've had um, I had a young man named uh, Christopher Harris, who is a cousin of my cousin, uh, come on and talk about the work that he's doing and the work that uh, young people can do, that people under 30 can do, because that's a group of people who are not usually involved and targeted in uh, you know in, in traditional genealogy societies and things like that. Um, I've had other kinds of interviews with other podcasters or with historians um, like uh, uh, the, the slave, uh, oh, shoot, I'm losing my words, um, uh, Joe McGill. Um, he does the Slave Dwelling Project. I had him come on and talk about his project and how it is that, that he teaches and things like that. So that's another way that I use the thing. And then the third The third way that I use this little soapbox that I have is uh, called the family cookbook. I want people to come on and present to me and everybody. But certainly what I do is I say, all right, we're going to talk today about my great-grandmother. And here's the one thing that I know that she used to cook. And I'll talk about her, tell a story about her making the thing, you know, or whatever my dad recalls about that or something. And then I'll give the recipe. Because food is genealogy food is american history and human history and family history
2: well i can't share my mom's macaroni and cheese I'll die. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> macaroni and cheese potato salad i can't give y'all that if i give I it to know. you I'm, I'm out so I, I unfortunately i can let you taste it that's what i mean. will
1: well, deconstruct the, the recipe considering the pair of us we you know we both descend from a lot of enslaved cooks
2: yes we do Yes, we do. And we can yeah. cook.
1: And we can cook. Yes. So I've got a question for you. Considering we live in very interesting times, and I think that's the adjective I'm going to go with, we live in okay. very interesting times. All righty. Have you, and you're a very forward person, which I love about you. You're not shy. You are not backwards and coming forwards, as the British would say. Um, have you been getting any pushback about the, the reparational work that you're doing?
0: Of course. Um, it's usually on Twitter. Although I did, okay, here's how it started. I started teaching in my church. First off, I've only been Mormon for 10 years. So all the work that I have done, I was called to do spiritually Mm. by my ancestors and the ancestors of others. And that had nothing to do with where I did or did not go to church. It happened that that part of being LDS fit together with who I am. And so now that's what I do. I only started teaching in 2015. I had no idea I would be good at it. Um, It turns out that it's sort of my nature because I'm an atypical learner. And the thing that was most disturbing to me when I first started teaching was that the wife of one of the members of the bishopric at my church tattled to her husband that I was enforcing in every lesson that I taught at the Family History Library that if you are white and you have enslaving ancestors You must share your information online and I would give a variety of ways and a variety of places in which you could do that. Share the documents, share the accounts, allow people to find that stuff and use it for themselves so that they can find their ancestors. It's a moral obligation and there is no question about it. This woman didn't like that. She went to her husband, so she complained to her husband, said that she never wanted to work with me again. And uh, fortunately, there was another temporal and family history consultant, and she could work with her. And so, fine. But that was the first pushback I got, and it was right in my own backyard. And I was so furious. I mean, neon, lit up furious that anybody would show their racism to me so plainly. I mean, not that they should be racist anyway, although we all are. And... Not that it should be covert, but this was really disgusting to me. And I decided, right, I've evidently not been confrontational enough. So I think I need to be more confrontational. Because if I'm more confrontational, then we're going to start to weep the jerks out. So on Twitter, um, yeah, I'm confrontational. And I've had some fights with some people who have said that what I'm doing is wrong that what I'm doing is bad history. I've had people who are members of the Daughters of the Confederacy, for which I qualify, hello, um, saying that what I'm doing is irresponsible or uh, that it's a charity or that I am somehow currying favor in the black community and of course a lot worse. And um, what happens when that happens, by the way, on Genie Twitter, if you're on Twitter and you want to do genealogical work, start looking for the hashtags, genealogy, family history, family search, ancestors, ancestry. There are uh, weekly chats. Uh, There's gen chat. There's uh, a DNA gen chat, but I, I guess it's gen chat DNA. You look up these hashtags and you find people. And when you find these people, you follow them. And when you follow them, they follow you back. And it's a beautiful community. Because outside of all the insanity on Twitter, there's this amazing teaching and learning community. And when somebody pops up and tar- starts to talk smack, they get the smack down in a fierce, ferocious, and unyielding manner. And it's a pile-on. It's just a pile-on. So basically people get kind of blackballed in that they get unfollowed by everybody, and blocked by everybody, if they start up with nonsense.
1: So I've got a follow-up to to that question, because we get this all the time. I kind of laugh about it, because I get accused of doing revisionist history. (laughs) Donning gets accused of doing revisionist history, and it's like, if I'm writing about an ancestor, and I'm providing all the documents, you know, deeds of sale, transfers and people's probate and will going from one child to the next that's history there's no revision about it that is well it is a
0: revision though it's a revision of the lie that everybody else has believed for so long when you let yourself be deluded by liars then you believe in you know crap and -hmm. then when you believe in crap and somebody comes to you and says look i have receipts these are all of the receipts see here one, two, three, four, five. That is a revision. It's a revision of their understanding, and it scares them.
2: Never thought of it like
1: that. No, I hadn't. Think. I mean, thank you for that insight. Yeah,
2: I, I never thought of it like that. I'm just that person. So I'm, I'm you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm that blunt. I'm that blunt sister that will just come straight out and tell you. I don't care. You know. Yep. I mean, we have. You know, when when I first when I wrote my book and Brian and I had opened up the Facebook page so to, just to get people ready and and Brian wrote an awesome awesome art not necessarily an article but it was more or less as if one of the characters in my book was speaking again Martha Brooks mm-hmm. it was so deep now you you tend to talk about spiritual connection yeah. Brian and I live off of that so I know for a fact this is why you're able to do what you're able to do because you have opened up to the point where you're allowing them to guide you and direct you in the manner in which you need to go. And and I hear it in your I hear the passion in your speaking and and everything. So when Brian wrote this particular um, write up about Martha as if Martha was writing, Martha literally spoke through him. She did. Yes. And it was so powerful that that one post by itself got like what 30 to 50 thousand views yep. and over almost 200 comments. And there was one guy when we first started doing it, and one guy got up there and he got so nasty. Brian did, Brian was ready to delete it. And I said, No, don't delete it. We need to deal with this, we need to know how to talk to these people. And my whole thing is, you can't tell me not to talk about my family. Just because my family was enslaved does not give you the right to tell me that I can't talk about them. Absolutely. And the problem is, when I say that to them, that's when they realize, oh my God, I never thought of this person as a person. I never thought of them as people and they start to realize that they're not thinking of them as people, that they do have a family that's connected to them, and that that family has a right to know who they are. Because I told him, I'm like, okay, so you talk about your your grandparents to your children. They don't know them, right? Well, no, they didn't know them. That was their great-grandparents. I said, and what you know about them, you share. Am I correct? Yes. So why can't I do the same thing? Mine just happened to be enslaved. He literally couldn't say anything. He was mm-hmm. done. He couldn't say anything. He came back later and was like, I get it. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason.
1: But even better than that, we actually had someone who, he had a bit of a slightly, he was very polite, but he had a slightly negative comment. And he's turned into one of our biggest fans. He watches this, you know who you are, I'm not going to name you. (laughs) (laughs) No, but he has. He's, He really has turned into one of our. He, you know, he watches the show every single week, and he, you know, he said that he he's always picking new stuff up. But again, kind of, um, th- I guess my last comment about the revision. I mean, I just this week got into a social media throwdown with someone talking about the happy slave narrative. Because oh, again, it's like, um, and I'm like. <laughs> Yeah, Yeah,
2: that's some crap right there. Because I shared
1: this this story with Donnie a little while ago. I have an ancestor who was a cook. Her name was Clarissa in Virginia. I'm not going to get into what happened to her, but she had some pretty horrific things happen to her because of her enslaver. So she thought, I'm going to fix your little caboose. She went out. She picked poisonous mushrooms. The family had this big family feast. She poisoned them all. And she packed up her bag and she left. She, you know, she went up to um went up north. So I countered the p- so I basically let that person know, um, no, not all slaves um, some might have been, but if you know if you go by my family history, n- no that not not really. Mm-hmm. Um so I'm trying to basically I I try to counter the revisionist history that they come out with. Um but yep. to put things on a more positive note, um, <laughs> What has been, I mean, the work that you do, um, I'm sure people have shared their emotions and their thoughts with you. I mean, what does it really mean to them, the, the work that you've done?
0: Well, I want to tell you a little bit about what happened when I found Dicey because there are some, and I've got hair standing up on the back of my head as I say this, some really extraordinary things happened. Um, the person for whom I was doing the research was black. His uh, wife is white and her parents are from England. So they have two very different life experiences. Um, And mostly I was actually communicating with her because he was really kind of timid about not wanting to hear bad stuff. While I was messaging with her, having done a bunch of exploration and having committed to this tree a bunch of information that that had come through hints and through research, um, Dicey and another woman came into the room, and um, I'm not saying I full-on saw a person. I'm not saying I'm a Long Island medium. What happened was my consciousness of them was raised, and they started to speak through me, Dicey did. I don't know who the the slightly smaller woman was with her, if that was her mother or someone else, but Dicey started to say to me, tell my great-great-grandson this. And so I was on Messenger and I was typing to his wife and I was like, oh, my gosh, Dicey's in the room. This is what she has to say. And fortunately, I can type fast. So I was getting it out. And she was saying, "Um, uh, I claim him as one of my own. Mm -hmm. I'm proud of him. I love that he plays music. I'm glad that he's getting an education. And she was saying all of these things that were so supportive of who he was and who he is. And eventually, well, well, then she she left, and I said, and she's gone now. And his wife said, "Uh, okay. (laughs) And I said, relay this stuff to him at a time when I know that you know that he can hear it, because that's not necessarily something I would know, and I don't want to tread on his understandings and where he is, because one thing that I found is, It's easy for me to charge in and say, look at all the stuff that I found, but this is trauma for you. This is serious trauma. For me, it's an intellectual exercise to a certain extent that it isn't necessarily for the recipient of the work that I do, and so I have to be very careful about parking and waiting. So she passed the information on to him. He approached me on Messenger and said, "Um, let me understand what you're saying. (laughs) And he doesn't have a deep spiritual tradition or anything like that. And he said, I'm not sure I believe anything that you're saying. And I said, you don't have to believe it. I simply have to relay it to you. And uh, in the end, we had a conversation where we looked at all of these records and showed that she owned property and that she made sure that all of her children were educated and that's how his grandfather or great-grandfather got to New York from South Carolina and how all of these things happened and, um, and, and how his life became what it is today. And he retreated from me for a while and then he came back and he said, and I mean, I'm months. And then he came back to me and he said, you know, thank you for helping me to find this woman She's meant so much to me. And the things that have happened in his life in terms of his ed- education and his increasing on a path towards physical health um, are all attributable to the knowledge of his family. I firmly believe that. I firmly believe that. So
2: what, did you know those things about him? Like, Was um, she, was she I did- giving you information that... Only she would be able to know by looking or...
0: Only one fact that I didn't know. I didn't really realize that he was a musician. She said that is who we are in this family and that is our tradition. But the other things were... A weird thing happens to me when somebody is present, whether it's my mom who died in uh, 1993 or it's somebody else... I felt my mom sit down inside my body and hang out for a concert that I was at. <laughs> and she was all about the concert, too. It was, it was an amazing thing. And, um, and I leaned over to, to the friend next to me and said, my mom's here. And he looked at me, and I said, she sat down with me, and she's here inside me. And I you know, I can't explain it any other way. And he looked at me. And he said, Okay. <laughs> you know <laughs> he was accepting of that he was cool, but otherwise, um what happens is I cry, but it's not a sobbing crying, it's a certain feeling that comes over me, and it comes with tears um but they're just tears coming out of my eyes. It's not sobbing and heaving right. and um i it's happened to me enough now that I know the difference between I am sad about a thing or I am moved by a thing and Somebody's here. Those are two very different kinds of experiences for me. I can't call on them. I can't make them happen. They show up when they do, and that's pretty much it. Don't
1: they, just? Don't they?
0: <laughs> but it's a, it's, a very, it's, it's a very clear and firm understanding that I have now um, that I have a very close relationship with the other side, that for me the veil is very thin. And that people cross over. Um, I've had people come to me in dreams. That's one I know a lot of people experience. Um, But that spiritual experience is one that I've come to count on. And that honestly, I get disappointed about when nobody's coming through. And I'm saying, please help me. Um, (laughs) I'm not sure about this thing.
2: (laughs) I, I, I don't get disappointed. I mean, it's because for me. I was so very afraid of that type of stuff when I was younger. I was like, "Oh my God!" My, I had an aunt who she had she played no games with. When she wanted to come and see her sister, my mother, she would come and see her sister and would leave something behind so that you know she was there. She mm-hmm. did that, and and it. Oh my God! I used to be so afraid, and then she went as far. As, to, as I got older and I had my children, she talked to my daughter. Now, this woman died in 1985. My mm-hmm. daughter was born in 1993 and it was 1996, so my daughter did not know Margaret Yeldell at all. Mm-hmm. She didn't know Margaret Yeldell, but yes, yeah, she was standing over there by that daggone window talking to this lady. And mm-hmm. I'm like, what lady? While I'm slowly getting up, putting on my shoes. <laughs> she was like, the lady, right? I'm like, well, what's the lady's name? And she said, Margaret. I'm like, all right, well, you tell Margaret, go and go to the light, and, and we about to leave. And I left. I took my daughter, me and my pregnant self, because I was pregnant with my son at the time, and we left. But it scared, it. I was so afraid of it. And that was the way, that's when I feel like spiritually, God knew, okay, we're not going to reach her this way. I need her to do the, the live people first. And that will introduce her to those who are dead. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that's what happened. I started just researching my immediate family and learning that my grandparents had five to 600 descendants. And, I mean, like my family's huge. But my family is just a a, bl- a drop in the water compared. My immediate family is a drop in the water compared to what we found now. Like it is amazing how large we really are because now we're we're pulling in the cousins and the the children of the siblings of our grandparents and great grandparents and so on and so forth. And it's unbelievable. And I feel like you. You know, there is an obligation. As genealogists as a whole, for us to be able to share the information that we found. So that leads me to this one last question: How do you how do you feel about this being added into schools? And have you ever spoke at a school and or conference about
0: it? I have been begging to be able to speak. I, right now I live in, uh, in, in the house that I grew up in because we're getting it ready to sell and it's easier for me to be here than to be elsewhere. And um, I have been begging people, um, either at senior center or in schools, to let me come and talk to children about the importance of doing family research and finding ways to get people onto free ancestry and to get them onto family search And to get them to do the most important thing, the fundamental thing, learning how to take folklore. Because folklore is where it starts. Mm -hmm. It's not always going to prove out to be right, but it is the beginning of what you know. And it also gives you an interesting uh, insight into how it is that people think about themselves when you hear the stories that they tell. You know, it betrays something very interesting. Um, I think that it's key. I think that it should be done. I think that there should be a unit in history or social studies in every single grade that carries on this kind of education that teaches best evidence and best research and that teaches that tying into family helps to give roots for, you know, at the risk of being trite to people and that it's possible to do this for people who were fostered or who were adopted. I just found the maternal family of a friend of mine through church uh, who did not know anything about his family except like two little facts, one of which was not true. <laughs> and we found through DNA, we we found his maternal family wow. going all the way back to, to enslavement. And that's an amazing thing. So I'm, I'm absolutely in favor of it. Um, I also want to tell you about Uh, the next thing that I'm doing, the thing that I'm working on very slowly, and it's how Brian and I are tied together in terms of research. It's called the Reparational Genealogy Project. The idea is that people who listen to my podcast, uh, who are primarily white, want to do research that touches on the needs of the descendants of enslaved persons, and whether it's because they have enslavers in their family or because they just think it's important, that's a part of what we talk about a fair amount on my podcast. So I have seven people, myself included, I believe, all white who are working on researching a tree at a time of lynching victims. Mm. And we started with lynching victims. Uh, Let's see. That idea first came to me. In about March of 2018, I guess, I realized that that was sort of the way to go. But it's also people who are famous and important in African-American history that white folks have never heard of. Because these people are people whose research doesn't get done and put on FamilySearch.org. And I have a fundamental belief. No one who is descended of an enslaved person should ever pay a red cent for DNA or for any form of genealogical research or assistance. That's the bottom line. So if I can do research, good research, especially if we can group source it, which means more white folks are learning how to do black genealogy styles, then we transfer that over to family search, which I can do because I'm a magical Mormon. And as a Mormon, I have a free world membership or international membership in Ancestry that gives me an extra icon. And you click on that icon, and it immediately interfaces with Family Search And you can drag people and citations back and forth between those two sites.
2: We need to get you in touch with Beyond Ken. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, I would love to. I would because absolutely love what, to work that's with what,
2: them. That's I mean, what they do. That's what they do. You, you definitely need to be in touch with beyond Kim. we will definitely get you in touch with them because and and it will help because they were trying to get with um ancestry to be able to do something like that but maybe with doing it with family search because family search you can build a tree there too
0: Yeah, but FamilySearch is a bad place to do research, though, in my personal opinion, because there aren't enough documents and it's too easy to make mistakes because the the, uh, research to tree process is clunky. It's better to have uh, your own little hermetically sealed room in Ancestry, do all your work there, make all your mistakes, clean them up and correct them, and then, and only then, transfer the people over one by one. Frequently, there are duplicates in Family Search. You have to merge those. You have to clean that kind of stuff up. Um, I would trust somebody who is a member of the church who's been working in Family Search for a long time with that uh, over somebody who is not that familiar with Family Search. So basically, you need to get you next to a Mormon. And that's really what I tell people. And I tell anybody who listens who is a member of the church, you need to step up. And if you want to step up, you know, join my Facebook group. Because we've got a Facebook group that is support for and fun from the podcast. And it's a real community. And I'm trying to get people into that. Because that's where the service comes in. This is all an opportunity for service.
1: Well, I was going to say, I guess my last point is going to be, one of my goals is to eradicate fear out of genealogy. Especially when it comes to cross-ethnic collaborative working, which is what you're, what you're promoting. So, for instance, something that Donnie and I have, uh, have spoken about that frustrates our soul from, from people who are maybe interested in doing black genealogy, they're fearful. They're fearful mm-hmm. about what they want to find. They're fearful about the fact that you know they're going to find white ancestors. But the other thing that really frustrates me is the phrase, I am not my, I am not my grandfather's oh, Negro. Because gra- <laughs> I always make the point we wouldn't be here If it were not for their strength for me it means as much to find out that an enslaved ancestor i don't care if they owned a shack i don't care if it was a one room shack they owned land they built their house and they did the best they could having had nothing that's right and that actually that actually gets me and our producer is kind of giving us the two minute (laughs) the two minute warning sign but what I was saying is, you know, I think that's the reason why the work you're doing is really important, is the work that Beyond Kind is doing that's really important. So many of them. The um, Sheila
2: Hightower Allen Project. Yep,
1: and so many of the genealogists that we work with, Robin Foster, Bernice Bennett, I mean, the list just goes on and daytime. on. Um, yes. I just really hope that that's going to be, I hope we're just forming a zeitgeist for people to just get over their nonsense, roll up their sleeves, and work together.
0: Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about for me. I've, I figured that out. It took me a while, but once I got there, I realized it. Um, my number one job as a white person is to teach other white people to get over themselves and start doing the work (laughs) because let's face it. Some of them aren't going to listen to anybody else. So, you know, I'm, I am the cold (laughs) slap slap in the face with a wet fish and I hope it works.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much for sharing your Sunday. I just want to say next week we're going to be joined by author and historian Kevin Levin. We're going to talk about the the myth of the black confederate. Um, So I'm sure we're going to get lots of interesting comments on that show. Yeah. But thank you.
2: And Carolyn, I would like for you to definitely send all of the information about your podcast and everything so we can post it. And on this particular video once we, because we will reshare the video onto the Facebook page. So that won't be a problem. And then people can comment there and we'll tag you on it. So that if there are questions that you guys have ask them on that and they will be answered. But thank you once again, it was wonderful having you on the show.
0: Thank you both so much. Nice to have the family reunion. So exciting.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And thank you for the work that you do.
2: Yes. Thank you.
0: Thank you as well. Very important. I appreciate it a lot.
2: Well, all right guys, we're off and, um, Sorry about the technical difficulty, but thank you again for um, tuning in, and we'll
1: see you next Sunday. See you next Sunday.
0: Bye. So, if you dug that, then you dug genealogy. Adventures USA, and you can find them on Facebook. That's where this uploaded video exists. It was supposed to be a video live on Facebook Live, but unfortunately, Facebook Live was not as cooperative as we might have liked. So instead, we did it live through the radio station that they were using, and now everyone can see it on YouTube. And I will post the YouTube address as well as the addresses for all of their social media in the show notes. But you can find them on Twitter, you can find them on Instagram, and they're great to talk with. They are amazing people. I am so glad that I found some family. Very exciting stuff. Now, there's one other thing that I want you to know, and that is I am starting to post full screen, not just on the telephone, but full screen teaching episodes about little things like how to set up all of the information that you need to have set up in FamilySearch, or something slightly bigger, how to convert family information from one profile in Ancestry over to its parallel profile or to a new profile, In Family Search. That's something that's specific to members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints, but that everyone I think would like to see. And it's a key part of doing reparational genealogy. How can you see those videos? It's easy. Support me on patreon.com for at least a dollar a month. That's not much. That's not even beginning to touch the cost of a cup of coffee it's only maybe a half a Coke. <laughs> you can surely spare that if you like the content that you're getting here. And if you want to have video lessons that help you to see things that I really just can't describe by audio alone. So be sure to go to patreon.com ancestorsalive alive and sign up. Also, I need reviews on iTunes. I really need them. I need positive reviews, five-star reviews. If you like what's going on here, please go to iTunes, if you use iTunes, and put a review in there because I'm looking for corporate sponsorship. Patreon just isn't cutting it, and there are things that I need to be able to do in order to advance not only the Reparational Genealogy Project, but also this podcast. So help me to find corporate sponsorship by helping me to look as good as I am. (laughs) Help everyone to understand how much you enjoy this podcast by signing on there and adding a five-star review with an actual written review attached to it. I'd really, really appreciate that. Thanks so much. And I'm still accepting until October 26th, Skelly Rally episodes. Remember, that's not to be scary. It's any kind of story you want. I've received a Swedish folk song. I've received all different kinds of stories about all different kinds of people. I'm going to be talking about the Salem witch trials. That's just my choice. But whatever it is that you want to say about somebody, all you have to do is grab your phone, record a video put it in the email to me at ancestorsalivegenealogy.com, and be sure to put Skelly Relly in the subject line of the email that you send me. That's all you have to do. It's that easy. So until next time, which will be soon, be good, do your research, don't be a Jeffrey, and above all, expect surprises.